You are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Alright, Acts 12, Acts 12. Man, I'm excited about this passage. If, that, if, that doesn't, if that, what we're saying doesn't get you fired up, I have nothing for you tonight. Nothing for you. Because literally we're about to preach through what we just sang. So here comes round two. I, man, Quentin, I'll be honest with you. Like, like, I'm sure Quentin reads ahead and knows kind of where we're going. That's part of his job. But like, I, I mean, I tell you, like, we, don't, we don't coordinate as much as like, the spirit. Like, if you're sitting there and be like, those guys are pure geniuses. It's like they lined up this song and this verse, and we talked about this, and we talked about that. That is the Spirit of God. It has nothing to do with us. The reality is we could sit there and plan that, and it would, it would flop. Or we could just do what we're doing and just being like, I trust Quentin's heart. I hope he's doing all right. I hope we're on the same page. Uh, I don't know if he knows what I'm preaching on this, this week, but like, then you see this, and you're like, I think the Spirit's okay. I, I, think, I think he's doing just fine in leading our worship. Uh, and that's, that's pretty incredible.
seminary. That's what I'm realizing. Hey, all right, all right. Guys, the reason, the reason this promise of power is, is so drawing for us is because, and, and you might not articulate it this way, you might not think about it this way, but we feel in, instinctively enslaved. A lot of us are bound to the fear of failure. We're bound or burdened by the weight of expectation. Some of us are crippled by the fear of judgment, the shackles of futility or meaninglessness or the bonds of control wrap around our souls. And when things don't go our way and when we don't get what we feel like we need or we crave, we actually rise up in overcompensation to try to gain the things that we know instinctively we never have and we can never secure. It comes out all over the place. It comes out at at home with our kids when we feel like we deserve some aspect of peace or tranquility and the kids run through the house and they mess up every sense of order and structure in your life and you're not getting the sleep you want. You're not getting the things you want. And so what do you do? You overcompensate for your lack of control and you actually use power as a way to try to manipulate, to try to get what you know you don't have. This is what happens when you face judgment and somebody disagrees with your opinion or uh, the teacher marks you wrong on your test when you thought you had a well-thought-out argument and there's criticism involved and all of a sudden the defenses just go right up and you overcompensate with your defenses and you actually do damage to relationships. Why? Because you feel like your judgment is undeserved and you feel like in many ways you need that, that validation and so you rise up and you try to overcompensate for that. Your anxiety shoots through the roof because you can't be wrong. The shackles of futility, this is why we give ourselves over to this kind of pattern, this, this endless pattern of sin addiction and the kinds of things that we choose to go after week after week and day after day because it's this endless mantra of meaninglessness. God can't use that which is already broken and sinful. And so what do we do? We overcompensate for that feeling. God can't use me. And we end up finding ourselves looking for the one thing that we want in satisfaction. And we end up not getting it, and so therefore we kind of reinforce the story of our own meaninglessness. It's this endless, slavish cycle. And the promise of more power, the promise of more you can have, the promise of see, you really can get, see, the the promise of you can control, yes, you can rid yourself of judgment, yes, you can meet expectations, creeps in. And we give ourselves to so many of the wrong things instead of simply receiving what God gives us freely in Christ. We see this yet again with Herod. Herod stands in a great line of those who overcompensated in order to achieve their own kind of power and political prowess. Herod himself was a very violent man, his grandson to a very violent man. If you remember, uh, Herod, the, the Herodian line, uh, being, being very violent. This is uh, Herod the Great. So this is Herod in this passage's grandfather was the one who led the great slaughter in Bethlehem from Matthew 2 around the time of Jesus. I don't even remember that story, but it was Herod uh, who actually led that charge. Well, we have his grandson here, and uh, he, he also is very violent. Do we have the... Yeah, we got it, we got it. We may be ahead of ourselves here a little bit. Nope, going back. We're really, we're really on here tonight with electronics. Um, but the, fir- the first thing, the first thing I, I want us to see in terms of this theme, I want us to see, guys, we have a very limited enemy. We have a very limited enemy. And Herod himself is like us. He's no different. He thinks he can get. He thinks he can earn. He thinks he can manage. He thinks he can control and use violence to get what he wants. But he too is racked and plagued with insecurities. He too knows that what he's desperately after is something that he has no ability to get. 
See, at this very time, there are actual historians that said that he was no, uh, he, uh, Rome was not a big fan of Herod at this time. He was actually indebted to Rome. He actually had a horrible relationship with the Roman uh, emperor Tiberius at this time. It was actually due to some very unwise comments that he made towards the emperor. And so now Herod actually seeks a way to get in with uh, some sort of crowd here, to get some sort of approval, some sort of commendation. And you see here in verse 2, he did what he, or in verse 3, he did what he could do to try to please the Jews. He was going after political power. He did this even during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This would be a time where Jews were all over the place. This is the week after Passover, and so there's many people in this environment, and he sees this opportunity. Hey, if I can actually arrest uh, some, some of the disciples of Jesus, this would actually give me some, some gains politically. They would, they would like to, uh, they, would, they would actually start to approve of me and uh, 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 <laughs> approve of me. You go down to verse 11. Um, when Peter eventually escapes, he says, now I'm sure that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. You see that Herod knew that there was expectancies of this group of people. And he said, if I can just kowtow to, to these uh, expectations, then they'll start to like me, even in the face of disapproval by Rome. So to boost the, his, his own perception and to, to boost his uh, feeling of power, Herod was forced to play politics, and he was totally dependent on it. We see this here in two different ways here. He was, uh, oh goodness, he borrowed politics and he borrowed power. All of it was done for the Jewish people, and all of it was done according to their own expectations. And yet at the end of the day, he ended up with none of it. We'll see this at the very end of the chapter of uh, chapter 12. The story ends bleakly for Herod. The tool at his disposal was violence and power and aggression. Remember, uh, if you remember from chapter 4, in fact, if you go back to chapter 4 real quick, go back real quick to chapter 4, verse uh, 7, I believe it is. I want you to see something because we've already talked about this kind of scenario here where a lot of times we, we use the very thing that we're, that we're trying to, to, to get. In verse 7 of chapter 4, uh, this is the, when the Sadducees were uh, trying Peter. And when they had set Peter in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Remember, he had just uh, healed the lame man at the gate. And what these Sadducees fear the most is God's power. Because he knew God's power was the, going to be the very undoing of their own search for power. And so they're asking, Peter, what power do you have? What power made this happen? And then you see later on in the very same chapter, uh, actually a couple chapters later, uh, not in this story, but in, in the, the next story over, when they try Peter again uh, in chapter 5, verse 17, a couple pages over, Remember, the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Later on, uh, before they let them go, they were said to have beaten the apostles at that point. You see, what they're doing is they're striving for power, and that striving for power is motivated by the, the very fear of power. They fear that they are the ones being controlled. And so in a moment of trying to seek power, they are now seeking to control. And this is, this is us. This is us. A lot of the things that we reach for, a lot of the things that we are enslaved to, indicate the very things that we are most fearful of. We fear the judgment of God. We fear the judgment of those around us. And so what we do is we actually then execute judgment on other people in order to prove ourselves right. It's this vicious circle, but all it is is borrowed politics, in Herod's case, and borrowed power. It's not even ours. It's not even the, it's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not even stuff coming from us. It's just simple uh, it's simple jealousy. It's simple uh, things that God has already put in our, in our world. 
And my friends, this is true about Satan himself. The reality is scripture is very clear about our enemy, the one who would actually oppose God. In Jesus, our enemy runs on borrowed power. The enemy of sin and the enemy of death itself, the enemy of Satan, they run on borrowed power. The reason that they are after you is because they felt like they are being come after. The reason they are casting judgment on you is because Satan himself also knows that judgment is coming for him. He's running on borrowed power. This is how death works. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes it very clear. The sting of death is sin. We, we feel the sting of death. How do we feel the sting of death? We feel it in the sin around us. He goes on, the power of sin is the law. The power of sin, the, the thing that we feel so closely, it's, it's aggravated, it's antagonized by the, by the requirements and the holy perfections of the law. Paul goes on to say, though, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, sin and death and even the threats of the law, though as holy and right as they are, the threats of the law are on borrowed power, borrowed time. Of course, we believe that Jesus himself came and fulfilled the law, filled it up for us, met its holy requirements. So there's no more wrath left for us, which is why Paul would go on and say, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? It's done with. And even the threats and even the presence of sin and the feelings of sin and the entrapments of sin here and, here and now are borrowed power. There actually is no power for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. There is no real and actual threat for those in Jesus. It can bark at you, but it doesn't bite. There is no actual threat in sin because of what Jesus has done for us. This is a limited enemy that we're dealing with here. And oh, how futile it is for those of us who would rebel against God and actually rise up in power against God. You yourself are dealing on borrowed power. Whatever power you think you have, it's borrowed. And my friends, it certainly is not strong enough to overcome what Jesus has already done in the gospel. For there's nothing stronger than death. So we see here this limited enemy. But we also see this miraculous rescue. This miraculous rescue. Ironically, I think this is now fixed. Some days, some days. All right. Miraculous rescue, verse 6 through 11. Uh, This is an amazing story. And Luke goes out of his way to show very clearly that there is no possible way for human intervention in this. In fact, we really begin to see this with Herod's attempt to prevent the rescue. It's almost like Herod knew what was up with these Christians and even said, well, I need to double down my efforts to try to stop what I'm pretty sure God will already do. It's like he knew. How do you know he knew? Well, if you go back to verse 4, you can see. When he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers. That's That's a little overkill for one dude. Intending after Passover to bring him out. You go down to verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, he was so close. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And that's not even to mention the sentries that were guarding the door uh, to the prison. A little overkill. But he wasn't wrong. Herod began to attempt to prevent what he already knew God would do in this rescue. The amazing thing is, I I love that that description in verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, oh my soul, he was so close. He almost got away with this thing. He almost pulled this off. And God swoops in at the right time. God comes in with just, I mean, it's, it's almost like I mean, like, Peter was, uh, Herod was about to, like, walk out the door. All right, let's go get this thing done. And that's like, all right, I guess I should probably get busy with this rescue stuff. Doesn't it remind you of 
Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So close. And sin almost got away with it. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. It's this beautiful little uh, uh, detail here that he gives at this right time. He's just about there. And God miraculously comes in, swoops right in right at the right time. This is also a miraculous uh, event or a miraculous rescue is seen by Peter's lack of readiness and awareness. This is stunning. It's almost laughable. It's almost, I mean, I get it too. I'm not, I'm not trying to be judgmental of Peter, but it's a, weird, it's a weird thing. First of all, let's give a little props to Peter. Peter had just seen what was going to happen to James. And here he is at sleep, uh, uh, totally sleeping. That's amazing. I think on the night that I think I was going to die, I probably wouldn't be sleeping. Maybe that's the Spirit of God. Maybe that's the power of the gospel. Maybe that's the power of being a witness of Jesus' resurrection. It's enough to put you to sleep on the night before you die. Props to him on that. It's pretty cool. But other than that, that's about all we can really like pump into Peter's like, uh, you know, self-approval tank here. Not that they did anything bad, but he just wasn't ready. He just, he just was not prepared for what was about to happen. The Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side. He thought the light would do it. He thought the light would, like, you know, maybe that'll get him out of his sleep, right? Like when you're in a dark room, and all of a sudden someone opens the door, and that light from the hallway shines in. That, that usually does it, right? Especially the light of the glory of God. You think that would, that would pretty much do it. And he's like, no. He strikes Peter on the side. Come on, get up. Verse 9, he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing another vision. Probably used to it by now. Seeing the one and then happened three times. And like, Yeah, I, I get these visions kind of often. And when, verse 11, now when Peter came to himself, he said, ha now I get it. Now I understand. This was God miraculously sending his angel to bring me out. I get it now. All right, All right God, I get it. We're good. This means that God's miraculous rescue is totally by grace. Peter was carried along. Peter wasn't ready for this. Peter wasn't anticipating this. Peter had no idea until it was all said and done that the grace of God had already been at work to rescue him. This is God's sovereign grace. Paul notes this very carefully in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. No ifs, ands, or buts. Any kind of human involvement that you want to claim in your salvation may be true from a human experiential level, but from the backdrop of God's care and in the backdrop of God's sovereignty, it was always all about his grace for you. Always. And if God in some gracious way gave you awareness of what was going on in the middle, praise God. But it's no less of his grace, his sovereign grace at work in your heart. God does these things, and we see this in the very resurrection of Jesus himself and also the very witness of the disciples. This was their understanding of the gospel. God does not work from bad to good or from better to best. God literally works from dead to alive. And this is the only kind of rescue in view, which is why Peter at the very end of this passage, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and all that the Jewish people were expecting. It was the Lord who did this. My friends, this is the nature of our rescue as well. He is the one who infused a quickening ray, and I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. I rose, went forth, and followed him. This happens 
purely by grace and no merit, no readiness, no anticipation on your part. It's also a miraculous rescue because you see the divine and supernatural deliverance. In many ways, we've already talked about. But you can see the powerful working of God in verse 7. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. How did he get in? How did he get there? Supernaturally. A light shone in the cell. Uh, Keep going. His chains fell off his hands. Did he have a key? We have no detail of a key. His chains fell off. Verse 10. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to an iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them. Here's a detail of its own accord, and they went into the street. It's purely divine, supernatural power at work. Peter verifies this. I'm sure that the Lord has done this. And the reality is, here's something that Paul would go on in the book of Ephesians to articulate about this kind of divine and supernatural grace at work in our heart in salvation. It's always way better than we can ever expect it to be. It's always far better than anything that we can ask or think of. He literally gets to the entire uh, uh, Paul and his argument in Ephesians 3, kind of going off of Ephesians 2, talking about how Jews and Gentiles are part of one body. He gets to this whole bit of salvation. He gets to the very end and exults in some sort of glory, glory moment here, this doxology, and says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This divine and supernatural power is always way better than we expect. In other words, the grace of God should consistently blow up our schemes of, uh, of measuring sticks, of expectedness, of, uh, of, of even performance or merit. It should just blow those things to smithereens, and we should be able to see the grace of God and be like, this is like anything else. This is a miraculous rescue. My friend, first and foremost, as a pastor, just as a friend, I wonder, I, I really, I, is this you? Do you read this, and does your heart say, that's me? Does, does your heart reach out and just say, like Peter, you're like, I, I may have been, I don't know if this has been real. <laughs> Maybe I've been led along by God. I don't know all the ins and outs of what's happened in my life of God's sovereignty. I don't know, but all I know is my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and here I am. Is if, if, my friend, if that's you, praise God. But my friend, if that's not you, I, I personally would love to, to, to talk with you about what God has been doing in your life, what, what God is doing to draw yourself to him, how you are enslaved, and how you need the shackles of the, this false sense of power to be broken in your life. My friends, it's the only hope that we have is this miraculous and divine, this supernatural deliverance. It's what we need. It's what we must have or else we're lost. And my fear is that at the, at the end of all time that it would be too late. My great fear for anyone here who would oppose, like Herod, who would claim on to or, or, or grasp on to this, this, this promise of power. Grasp onto it and, and lose the sake of time. My friend, God has you here so that you would hear the gospel, so that you would repent of your own power and so that you would have the divine workings of Jesus applied to your soul. I encourage you to listen. We have this miraculous rescue, but we also have this call to prayer here at the end of this passage. And this is about as funny as a church scene as you will ever see. This is one of my favorite church scenes in all of the Bible ever recorded. If, if you love church, can I just encourage you to just, I love the church, right? Okay, I, was, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't love the church. You know, but, may, but maybe you have like over like these, these glasses that just thinks like church is always awesome, like nothing ever happens wrong in the church. It's been going wrong for a very long time, all right? 
So welcome to the club. This is not a, a club of great people doing awesome things. Uh, this, this is a bunch of, of people who have been gloriously rescued, who are just hanging on to the heels of the divine, uh, and we find a mighty savior. That's, that's what we're doing, all right? Uh, so laugh at ourselves here. Laugh at these people, but laugh at us. This is, this is us too, okay? This is ridiculous. Peter goes to the house of Mary, mother of John, uh, who, whose other name was Mark, John, John Mark's mom. Obviously a, a big house. There's probably some, some wealth involved, uh, some notoriety involved. They're all hanging out at her house. They're all hunk, hunkered in together, and they're all praying for Peter. In the middle of this great Wednesday evening prayer meeting, right? They have their prayer list, Peter's, Peter's head on it. They're going to have a prayer meeting. And there's a knock at the door. And Rhoda, this poor girl, never had a chance, right? There's servants involved, this, this poor thing. She probably had the most faith out of anybody in this entire party. Knocked at the door, servant girl Rhoda comes to answer, recognizing it's Peter's voice. She didn't open the door, but ran right back and reported, Peter's here. And they laughed. They literally, they, they, they chuckled. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. God doesn't answer prayer that quickly. God doesn't do miraculous things, Rhoda. All right? I know Jesus walked out of the grave. I know, we've been, we, I, I know we've been talking a lot about it, giving praise reports of all the good things that God is doing, the Gentiles receiving salvation. But Rhoda, God doesn't do this, Rhoda. It's amazing. They said to her, you're out of your mind. She kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's an angel. It's not him. It's his, it's his imaginary person, right? It's his shadow. Peter, and here, here's Peter at the door. Like, what's going on? Maybe I'm doing this wrong? Is this, is this not working? Where's the ring? Maybe they'll answer it on their cell. What's going on? What am I? They opened the door. They saw him and were amazed. Not expectant, but amazed. Motioning with them to be silent, he stood and he described, guys, you had it all wrong. God does work this way. God does do this stuff. I know you weren't expecting this. I know you were just going through the motions of prayer and of church life. But God does work this way. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle. But he, he can and does work this way. As the great theologian Thomas Watson said, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. And this is a helpful helpful understanding for the nature of prayer within our community. It should be no surprise to us that Peter was rescued during a time when the church was actively praying. That should not shock us. In fact, it, it should shock us when God doesn't answer prayer. It, we, we, should, we should be a little alarmed. We should be, we should be thinking, it's, it's, some, it's, it's your imagination. You're out of your mind, Rhoda. You're out of your mind. God loves to answer prayer. God loves to do it. So why wouldn't we keep praying and expecting? My friends, we should keep praying. And we should keep expecting. Why? God has always appointed his chosen people to intercede for those who are enslaved to the powers of this world. Let me say that again. God has always appointed chosen people to intercede for those who are enslaved to the powers of this world. Always. The people of Israel do not see deliverance without Moses interceding. The people of Israel don't ex escape God's judgment for their sin unless there's Moses in the way. Christian people throughout all generations do not see heaven, but instead are resorted to hell if we do not have a Savior, a great high priest whose name is love, interceding on our behalf. God has always chosen, holy chosen people to actually intercede for those who are enslaved, and God intends to use that intercession for divine rescue. That's how he chooses to rescue is through intercession for those enslaved. You could argue, 
You could literally go back to Moses and the Israelites when God is hot and God is literally, he said, I'm going to wipe them out. Moses stands in the way and says, God, you can't. Do you forget your promises? You can't forget your promises to these people. And God then says, I repent of the disaster that, I'm going, that I was going to do to them. There is no sense that God was going to slow down in his anger until Moses actually reminded God of his promises as you can't do that. I'm in the way and I'm holding you to your promises. And there's rescue. This is how God intends to rescue people that we know. My friends, you were not rescued. You were not saved without intercession. You weren't. Whether Jesus is, certainly Jesus is. Your friends, your loved ones, people in church, people in your community who prayed for you. Who, who knows who God listened to? Certainly Jesus. Certainly his intercession. And that's the most meaningful one. But who knows who else God used and listened to their voice and said, I will rescue that person. We'll never know that until heaven. But I can't wait to ask God, God, who, whose prayer did you listen to? Who did you choose? Who did you raise up to intercede for my soul? My friends, we must be interceding for the people around us. This is why one of the values of Good Shepherd Bible Church in the grow category, if we're going to grow as a church, if we're going to grow as the people of God, one of the values that we are committed to, the commitments, is this value of prayer. Why? We are committed to the fact that we believe that God uses intercession to rescue enslaved people for his glory. And we believe we're actually tools of that, instruments of that. This is why Peter would motion to them and say, hey, 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 shut up. I want to tell you about this miraculous rescue and how God used your prayers at this time to deliver me miraculously. And then what I want you to do is I want you to tell James and the other guys, I want you to tell them about what happened to me so that that word can spread, that word can get out. It's amazing, actually. This is a beautiful recipe for how God intends for us as a church to grow in this matter of prayer. First, we must pray, just as they prayed. Go back to verse 5. How did they pray? So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him by the church. Was it completely faithful prayer? Was it completely expectant prayer? No, we know that to be true. This was not the greatest model of prayer, but yet there was fervent prayer made. There was intercession made, which is a good sign for us that God even uses our broken prayer. God even uses our not greatly filled with faith prayer. God chooses to use our not greatly expectant prayer and will still save souls. That's amazing, but we should pray. We should pray. The second thing we see is that we then need to receive those who have been freed. If we're going to pray, God free these people, the next step, when they knock on our door, we're ready. We're ready. I'm expecting people. Connection team, I'm, I'm expecting, we've prayed. I'm ready. I'm expecting people to walk in the door. We don't get disappointed if, if they don't, but when they do, we're like, we've been praying for you. You're the one. You're the one that God has sent. Thanks for knocking on our door. It's an angel. Send them back. Rhoda, get out of here. Connections team, Rhoda, get out of here. It's an angel. No, we are ready to receive those who have been freed. And then in verse 17, we share their story like we share our story. We, we let them tell of the miraculous grace of Jesus. We're praying expectantly for them. Then we receive them. We're ready for them. Tell me the story. How did it happen? Your chains fell off too? Iron gate? Open? Two guards? Four centuries of soldiers? <laughs> me too. Yeah, it was like a miracle, man. It was like the light shone. The guy actually like whacked me. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. The Lord's like, he just came upon me. My soul was changed. You too? Can I tell your story? Can I tell my story to you? And we let it rip. We let it go. And maybe a thing just for fun, maybe we watch the enemy scramble. Look what it is in verse, in verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers. Luke has a detailed man. That is a, that is a great little line, isn't it? There was no, uh, shall we say, uh, little disturbance <laughs> among the guards. There was panic. 
there was mass chaos. Let's, let's be real. These guys' lives were now at stake. They were on the wrong side of power. My friend, we, we look at all this and we see what kinds of things power can offer us, but we see the futility of trying to gain your own power. We will see this big time next week, okay? Herod as an enemy of God. We, we, we saw this in Grace versus the World, right? We, remember that episode in the book of Acts? We see literally God's biggest opposition on this planet, the Apostle Paul saw at that time. And God can literally convert the dude. That's amazing. Here, Herod's on the other side. We're going to see that in, in the next chapter. But my friend, the point is, God can deal with opposing borrowed power in an instant, in a second. It's nothing to him. Enemies, nothing. Sin, it's nothing to him. Death, it's nothing to him. Satan, it is nothing to him. So opposing God, what are we even talking about? Why are we even, it's unreasonable, it's illogical to think you can actually stand up to God and get the life that you demand. It's, 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 it's arrogant, but guys, it's, it's ridiculously futile. You don't stand a chance against the one who defeated death and sin. You don't. Oh, my friend, but the grace of God. Oh, my friend, but simply having your chains fall off for free. Simply, in, simply just walking, following the angel, following Jesus himself, taking a step behind Jesus where he's already walked, following his path, following his road, by grace. Oh, my friends, what an amazingly, if I can say it this way, simple thing. There's, there's nothing for you to do. It's been done. The victory has been granted to you. You're just now living in it. You get to kind of discover what freedom from sin and bondage looks like. You kind of get to unpack what it means to not have to burden yourself with the judgment of Satan or the judgment of the law or the judgment of other people. You get to kind of unpack all that and unburden yourself from those, from those bondages. You get to actually unwind your sin history and take a look at it and say, these, these things don't master me. These things don't tell me what to do. They can't tell me where to go when it's all said and done. Jesus tells me where to go, and he says he has a place for me in heaven. You get to unpack what freedom in this life truly means and experience that. And I think you'll find a whole host of things to get busy about on this planet. There's plenty of grace to explore. There are plenty of people who are in bondage who need the same kind of rescue that you need. So you get to explore what it means to not live your life for yourself, but now begin to live your life for other people who are in bondage. You get to help unpack all those things for them. My friend, it's a beautiful thing. So let's, let's rest. Let's, let's just pause. Let's just rest in what Jesus has done. Take a look at his great salvation. Take a look at all that he's done. And maybe this week, find somebody to share it with. I mean, it's just like, how do you respond to that? Hey, shut up. Can I tell you how miraculous this has been, this whole thing? Let me just share it with you. Let's be people who are exploring this kind of grace, this miraculous rescue. And then my friends, also, let's pray. Let's pray. I, I, I continue to be burdened for specific people that I have just constant contact with. And I'm, I mean, I had fervent prayer, that's eh, probably, not, not, probably, probably not my life for them. Fervent prayer, it's probably not how it could be described for me. I want to get better at that. I want to keep pursuing that. Why? Because I want God to draw these people to himself. And it's not some wishy-washy mechanism. It is divine rescue. God's got to actually get the thing done. He's actually got to go in and do the miraculous rescue. He's got to pull them out of that prison. But I'm wondering if this week, if there's names that we're committed to, maybe in community group you can share who are the people that God has put, and maybe you spend the whole time fervently prayer, uh, fervently in prayer, and then you keep that door open in case someone starts knocking. Lord, what are you going to do? Who are you going to save? Who are you going to draw? Let's commit to prayer, and let's answer that call. All right? Speaking of, let's pray. 
God, we have names on our hearts. Father, I personally lift up to you my neighbors. Father, Eric and Asia, Father, I continue to pray that you would draw them to yourself. Father, for Jonah and for Lori, for Joel, for Charlotte. Father, I pray that you would continue to do your miraculous intervening work for them. Father, they need you even more than they would recognize. And Father, they might be some of the fiercest enemies on this planet to you. I don't know. Father, you do. They might be like a Herod or they might be like a Saul, but Father, what is that power to you? You've defeated sin and death. You've taken care of Herod. You've converted Saul. So Father, who or what are these souls to you? You can change their heart, and we're asking that you would for Christ's sake and for their good. Father, there are others who are already praying in this room, beginning to pray fervently for people that you have placed on their hearts. Father, I pray that for the sake of Christ and for the sake of those people, that you would answer our fervent prayer to rescue souls that are in darkness right here around us, or maybe even abroad. Maybe there's people that we're just connected to, that we know are your enemies that need to know the saving grace of Jesus. Father, go into that jail cell and set captives free. Father, we pray these things for the good of your church and really for the glory of Christ. And we pray these things in his name. To the cross.